Okay, welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I am Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz, glad to be with you, Adam A. Donaldson. And if Adam Plain Donaldson is out there listening, I apologize for sending you all that mail. <laughs> oh, behind the curtain. Yeah, there's some behind the music there, but... <laughs> There is uh, uh, three or four Scotty Hertzes out there, but they're all uh, somewhere in America. So. Oh, well, there you go. It's, they must uh, be getting my mail on occasion. <laughs> well, you, you can keep it. Yeah, you're, you're, you keep changing emails to stay one step ahead of CSIS. It's going to be some confusion <laughs> in the <laughs> Mister Black at. <laughs> yeah, that may be too much information. Yeah. Uh, open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. You can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Guelph's MPP and the leader of the Green Party of Ontario, Mike Schreiner. Mike will join us to lend his perspective to the week's restriction rollbacks and uh, the stuff going on in Ottawa and the Ambassador Bridge. Maybe a bit of optimism, too. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, that will be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the week uh, this past week, including online hate. The Canadian Journalism Foundation released a report about the effect of online hate and threats against journalists. Should newsrooms be taking a more serious look at that issue but first uh as kind of implied we're going back to the convoys we wanted to look at this from the uh specific point of view of the police and what we're to make of the police in um everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks and by sheer coincidence if <laughs> not sheer willpower um Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly comes out on Tuesday and announces that he's resigning from the police force. Uh, it seems uh, uncertain exactly what was kind of going on behind the scenes with uh, Chief Slowly, but uh, it seemed there might have been some leadership issues uh, at the Ottawa Police Department that were exacerbated by uh, leadership issues during the convoy. And of course, all this is taking place against the backdrop of new uh, emergency orders from the Ontario government, the invocation of the Emergencies Act from the federal government, the RCMP discovering a pretty substantial weapons cache in a small inside militant group that was a part of the Coots blockade and uh, the end of the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge as well. So I think that's the week in a nutshell. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. So much. You can almost dedicate the whole hour to it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I suspect that the, <clears throat> the weapons cache uh, in Coots was probably the tipping point for this. Finally, beyond all the honking and hot tubs in the middle of Wellington street and that uh, it, it sounds like they're probably not going to make another weekend out of it. The, I'm not sure we're we're recording on Wednesday and I suspect by airtime, if not, I think within 48 hours. Mm. So by Friday and these, these types of, um, I was going to, yeah, I was going to say mission, but it's not really a mission. These types of takedowns take place early in the morning. Mm. So either tomorrow morning, which is Thursday or Friday morning, they're going to move in, but they're very, it's weird. They're very politely handing out these flyers saying, 
and <laughs> gently suggesting to the truck, you know, okay, it's time to go. Whereas, as we know, we've talked about this before in other uh, protests of a similar nature, they just bust in and, and bust heads and arrest people right away. Yeah, They're still so reluctant to do that. And I think a lot of it is to do with, and I've heard this in other places too, that in some ways, beyond everything that happened with Slowly, because it did sound like there was some kind of power dynamic thing going on there. But of course, he would have to fall on the sword no matter what. Mm-hmm. If this was resolved tomorrow, he would still have to go. Mm-hmm. But I think... In this case, a lot of the police are kind of looking at themselves in the mirror by the sounds of who is involved with this protest. Police coming out saying, you know, don't hold the line, don't move. Not all police. There's certain certain players, let's say, are saying these things. There's military people involved. And we know there's a related police military dynamic, not just in this country, but around the world. Uh, so in some ways, I'm not sure if the police find it hard to crack down on this group that is so much like them. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm not. I don't. I'm not implying at all that police are necessarily treasonous, but it's. I think that has been some of the difficulty. That it's easy to crack the heads of the other. Generally, you know, they have no problem sweeping in, and that's something that happened too in the case of well, not just Coots, but specifically Windsor when capital is threatened. Mm. How I mean, how long did it take until they budged on this? It was like they're losing. Millions and millions, and it sounds like it may be upwards of a billion or something. Three billion. Lost from that. They said the last time that that border was closed was Mm 9-11. So once faced with those numbers, it's like, we're not going to take any crap. We're not going to take it. Yeah, they've appropriated that (laughs) Twisted Sister song as well, which I used to like. Uh, Once that starts happening, then that's it. The hammer comes down. And that was prior. I mean, this is the thing. The Windsor contingent which was a mixture of police forces were able to handle it. Why not Ottawa? And that's, you know, that's the great question. I think there's probably going to, I've heard it suggested too, there's going to be an inquiry as to what went down in Ottawa and what went wrong, considering it's the capital, right? Coots is one thing, but you know, it's, it's worldwide. Every news service around the world has pictures of the circus, the circus that's going Mm -hmm. on in Ottawa Mm -hmm. still. I mean, you know, and last weekend when, you know, the tempers were wearing thin, you know, that was kind of like the worst weekend for the circus because that's when the hot tubs came out. That's when they erected this like huge stage with like a, um, the the big screen and all that. And it's like it, it really felt like it, it was being sort of flaunted in the face of authority. It's like, oh, look, you can't do you're literally not doing anything. So we're going to make it even worse even though kind of like the worst of the hawking and things have been over. And it gets to the point where you get Jim Watson saying, okay, uh, I will negotiate. If you pull your rigs off of the residential streets, if you, if you stop going South of Wellington, I will talk to you. Um, and there seemed to be a, some indication that they were doing that when um, the emergency act was uh, announced Um it's it's so hard like i can imagine there was a conversation with in ottawa that was something like they'll come for the weekend they'll disperse like they say they're gonna come but like nobody nobody like stays entrenched in the city center like yeah you could go out to the middle of the woods and like the 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 road they just paved to to to, to build the coastal link gas link pipeline and you can uh, erect tents and stuff there because it's the middle of nowhere and you're not bothering anyone. You can do that, sure. You can't 
occupy the national capital region, which is a government, it's a neighborhood, it's a business uh, improvement area, it's it's a tourism spot. Um, it's just kind of like a lack of imagination that nobody thought it would get up to three weeks. Um, and I think it's also there, there's also a continuing lack of imagination. Um, the fact that they were going out today, like f- 36 hours after the, the act is invoked, like, hey, guy, here's this flyer telling you what the story is. Like, maybe you can you know go home now or something. I don't know. We, you know, I don't know what will happen tomorrow, <laughs> guy. But here's a, it's, a, it's an English and French. See? No excuses, guy. Maybe you can move your hooch now. I don't know. Hey, oh, nice mailbox here at 99 and a half Metcalf Street or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it just seems like it's it's still such a weak reaction. And, and again, I don't want to see, um, no matter how much I might disagree with the Pat Kings of the world, like I don't want to see police with billy clubs out. But I think this is something that a lot of Canadians are being confronted with. How can you watch what happened at the G20 in 2010? How can you watch what happened um, in the Toronto parks last summer uh, with the homeless encampments? How can you watch, you know, footage from what happened at uh, Wet'suwet'en um, with, you know, RCMP and tack gear and barking dogs and, and, you know, M95s or whatever big gun you have. And then look at what's going on. Um, in downtown Ottawa, the police are just kind of like chilling out. Just stay, hey, guy, here's a flyer that says you're breaking the law. Like it, it's 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 you know for people who aren't kind of on top of these like issues of policing, it, it's it's confusing to people, and it's also confusing to people when like Sylvie Jones comes out and says like, oh, we can't tell the police what to do, and you're like, excuse me, you're the government, you can't tell the police what to do. Who's telling the police what to do then? And I'm. So, so there's kind of like a, a this is a learning moment as much as uh, like an actual policing moment in terms of like we're understanding a how much power the police have um, and, and in terms of how they use the power that they have. And number two, um, who the police choose to use their power against and how much power they use against when it is someone whom. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can look at the crowd and certainly there are people who have military and police training in the convoy. Um, But, you know, at the same time, uh, that's not supposed to matter when you're actually the person wearing the uniforms. Not, you know, if, if, you know, you saw your ex-partner like robbing a bank, would you, you know, just, okay, okay, look, I... Maybe a misunderstanding, but you know, just take the money and go. Take the money and go. Like, no, we'll let like, this one go this time. Well, yeah, <laughs> your pension was bad. Like, After years of bank. dedicated service, you could rob this one bank. You spent twenty years on the force. You're entitled to one bank robbery. No, people would think that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear too, it's like no one wants the police to crack heads. Okay, Absolutely. there are some people that want police to crack heads. But they want this situation resolved. Yeah. And perhaps the flyering thing is the way to do it. But they should have probably done that, oh, at least two weeks ago. Yeah. Maybe further ago. So there, there's <laughs> obviously, <laughs> there is obviously some kind of structural problem here. Now, whether it's, you know, the just, I don't think it would just come down to the chief because it's, it's multi layers. There's many police forces involved, but they all have tons of power. And we know this. It's like if, if a law is being broken, and they see that it's their job 
to enforce it. And there's been blatant, you know, some of them are like mylon fractions, but others are, it's, it's serious, or let's say more serious stuff. I'm sure there's a law about setting up your own mailbox in the middle of the road. You know, they could get them on like the, uh, the <laughs> mail and letters own- act, right. Of 1910 or something, right. Like there's or- always a law to deal with every situation if they wanted to. And this is the problem. And it is the, it's the, ongoing issue and it is they're gonna they're gonna have to they'll be unpacking this for years as usual you know the the royal commission on the thing that happened well you or i will remember it right it'll be like (laughs) you or i or anybody couldn't go down to like one of the alleys on quebec street and say okay this is now 16 and a half quebec street (laughs) (laughs) right and that's you know it just send me my mail here or just see like and it's something you can't get away with um, <laughs> under typical circumstances. It, yeah. It's it's just so bizarre. And I can understand why people are that frustration. My concern is, and we kind of get shades of this um, with the, the what was coming out of the Ford government on Friday, that, you know, they're going to find a way to codify these emergency powers. So it sounds like we're going to get something like the UCP's um, critical infrastructure defense bill. Which, I mean, hasn't done them a lot of good in coots. Uh, that critical infrastructure seems to be pretty undefended, uh, or at least until the RCMP got whiff of people with long guns and high-capacity magazines. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, again, if, if this is kind of the reaction is like new laws, we, ha- we should stop first and ask the question, like, is the problem the law or is the problem the enforcement? Because, again... Police seem to have no problem enforcing the law when it's people protesting capitalism, when it's people protesting for indigenous rights, for black lives, for the environment. All of these things seem to get a tremendous amount of police attention. And if that is the case, if we are treating these protests or even just like homeless people trying to live in in the park because they have nowhere else to go, if we're treating different types of people differently, that is a policing problem. That's not a law problem. That is a policing problem. And that would require, you know, I guess that's the concern, too, if this comes down to an acquirer, it becomes like a, a snipe hunt of who's to blame for what, instead of being a systemic in, uh, inquiry about why police, ex- you know, use their powers more severely against some people than other people. And the implementing the Emergency Act is going to create a squeeze for a period of time. It, it, this was very interesting to me because... You know, with with Trudeau Senior and the War Measures Act, that was a different world of legislation. Uh-huh. Uh, th- I guess, well, if it was '88, it was Mulroney era. So this is not like a liberal bill. This was this was devised in the '80s, and of course, they can't. The Trudeau government can't win because if they didn't do something, the conservatives, and it's usually the conservatives, would say they're not doing anything. <laughs> so they actually do something, which will create a squeeze on people, like financially, uh, lic- their licenses, insurance. The people that are funding this thing, uh, anything from like having, you know, having the children in the trucks specific to Ottawa, that's that's mm. not allowed as of when this thing passes. And I, I don't know if that's what they're waiting for, maybe, because it still has to pass yet, right? Mm-hmm. Unless I missed the news today, but it's still, it, it probably will, but it has to pass in, in both houses as well, right? So the Senate 
has to stamp it as well. And if it, if they don't, then it, it doesn't happen. So I'm not sure if that's if it's going to be fast tracked. And then I think Parliament adjourns for a while again, as usual, right? Another another vacation, right? Yeah. Um, so they'll they'll be out of there by the time maybe the this, the crackdown comes. But yeah, so this this slow slow squeeze is going to happen now. And the problem the, the point I can't remember where the point was made was that. <laughs> The, the the problem is going to be you know this is this the emergencies act is a limited window but mm-hmm. if the police decide to crank this up they will use whatever they're doing on all protests right yeah. so it's, right. it's 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 the degree of the response is the thing that's interesting in this case but also surprising like i said no one most canadians don't want them to go and just bust heads right so maybe in some ways, this is the way to do it. Perhaps not as long a timeline, but it's like, okay, here's how we're going to handle these things. Or like in Windsor, where they just did the squeeze, right? They mm-hmm. did the squeeze. We're like, we're going to, um, which was reminiscent of the G20 when they did the boxing people in who were singing Oh Canada. Weirdly enough, I thought back to that. That was there. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't end up uh, kettled, as they called it, but uh, I just narrowly missed all the rounding up of people somehow, miraculously. But I saw that in action, and that was multiple police forces too, including internationals and all of that. Um, so ha- having witnessed that firsthand, it was surprising to me. And actually, weirdly, the 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 protest that took place in Toronto, like mm. right at that intersection, was where I'd kind of exited everything and saw all the cops running down the street to Queens Park when they arrested you know Steve Pakin among others. Right. So mm. if they want to use the power, they can use the power. Mm-hmm. But the second that those rigs rolled in and the air brakes were like locked on. They lost any tactical advantage that they had, and that's why these yeah. the rando dudes, um, you know, the usual suspects that, that do all the upping about this, like stay, stay put, hold the line, hold yeah. the line is the popular phrase. It's like you know this, you're you're veering into radicalism here. It's like okay, so what's next? And the concerns about violence, it, you remember the saying, well, we don't want to move in because we're concerned about violence. What do you think might have happened in Coots there with that arsenal that they found, right? Mm-hmm. There's definite concerns about violence there. They managed to take care of it. I don't like I, I don't do not know what the holdup is in Ottawa. And it isn't just they keep referring to the, the children in the trucks now. I don't think it's that. There's way, way more to it than that. But it looks like there's probably gonna be a fire sale on a couple of bouncy castles and some saunas. So anybody that's in the neighborhood <laughs> with a flatbed and a DZ license might uh you know, might benefit from the roundup, which is coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be an interesting auction sale uh, sometime later this year at the Ottawa Police Service, I think. Yeah, um, speaking of violence, though, uh, yeah. the Canadian uh, Journalism Foundation released a report called The Poison Well. It is about how um, journalists are having to fight online hate more and more and more especially journalists who are women or people of color um it is getting to a point of crisis in some cases and uh this was a 16 page report with several recommendations also very um simply and directly outlined a lot of the problems um you know it's kind of it feels kind of like one of these things where it's like, well, journalists are, you know, there's, you know, sensitive bunch, you know, if you can't uh, take the heat, get out of the kitchen. I think you'll probably hear a lot of that. But I think the the point of the report is that uh, there's a lot of heat to take. And um, uh, I think I think a lot of people are, are out there are, and you certainly see this online with 
people who are covering the convoy um Mm-hmm. A lot of, st- I mean, this is not sort of like in the course of doing your work, kind of hate. This is see, this is very pointed, very um, violent, very um, negative in terms of your <laughs> in terms of your mental health. Um, seeing some of the stuff that uh, some reporters, especially women, and especially especially women of color, are sharing right now. Yeah, and I, to give one example, I thought back to Supriya Duvetti. The uh, she's a com, you, you know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. um, the comms person uh, worked with the Liberals, and she was she was very good on the panel and and the uh, uh, CBC News Network when they, we used to have that. But anyway, and I've had a little bit of a back and forth with her on Twitter on occasion. Uh, so she was on AM six forty, mm-hmm. and in late 2020, I'm sure you know the story, Adam and. Uh, she was on the air in tears because mm-hmm. what had happened was she'd been suffering the abuse, the kind of abuse that you've been talking about, but then it turned and got worse. And they were, they were talking about her husband and then, and this is the absolute probably most re- reprehensible thing. She had a young mm-hmm. child and people mm-hmm. were threatening the child. Mm-hmm. We're going to kill the kid or rape, rape her, rape her child. So she said, after all that, she finally had enough. She got on the air and just said, forget it quite publicly. Right. <laughs> and this was prior to the support. And in unwinding all of that, like she was let down and was, and felt like she was let down as well. But then there was uh, what's the lawyer? He's does talk shows. I think it's Howard Levitt. Mm. Um, what was got it got into it somehow? I'm not sure if he was he was just uh, putting forward an opinion or whatever. And it was like, well, you know, you're because because you're in this industry, you have to expect a certain amount of this. And it's like, no, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. Right. And th- this, as the, the report said, was talking about how do how is this dealt with? And it sounds like if, if you are with a news organization that a lot of them have, um, you know, help available for when something like this happens, like providing supports and what to do. And it, but, it, you know, justice is very hard to come by in a situation like this because it's almost impossible to track to track people down unless they're you know super open about it. a lot of it is you know phantom accounts or whatever but it's it's just it's the effect it doesn't matter who it's coming from the effect is the same but the problem part of the difficulty is and i'm sure you've seen a bit of this adam i know you have mm-hmm. uh is with freelance people mm-hmm. where you've hung out your own shingle and, and i've heard this from from lots of people too that are just trying to do uh what they do nora loretto friend of the show a good example it was like she just gets pounced on all of the time continuously doesn't matter what she's talking about mm-hmm and in most cases, you know, it's the, there's opinion and fact, the presentation of fact, like the people that are at the convoy and all that going on, they're just getting yelled at and uh, Mike's thrown out of the way and your fake news and epithets of, of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Duvetti's case, that I, I had a look too, because of the, the comment, and this was in late 2020, but the comment was about how it was, this wasn't coming for her, was how it's a white organization. And guess what? It still is, mm-hmm. right? So wh- whether that steers where the response is going to go, I don't know for sure. But it's like <laughs> this was the only person of color that had a show, a talk show on this station. Mm-hmm. And then they, they had to leave because of this. So it's like there's it's still it's chronic. It's worse, right? The percentage is high, way higher now than it was even 10 years ago. And whether that's to do with the rise of social media or all these other factors, Uh well, yeah, well, I mean, they, they find the one, right? Like if, you know, in newsrooms that are kind of like predominantly white and maybe someone who is, you know, black or indigenous or 
whatever got hired. So um, <laughs> there would be like, I guess, less of a accusation about um, your, your predominantly white male newsroom. Those are the people they who, who tend to get it uh, more in terms of online hate. And you got to keep in mind too, when we talk about capital M media, we think about like the anchors and yeah, Evan Sol- somebody threw a beer can at Evan Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not great. But on the other hand, Evan Solomon spends 99% of his time in a studio. Yep. Um, the people who are out in the crowd um, are, t- are typically not the stars or the anchors. They are the journey men and journey woman reporters who are out in the community reporting every day. And that's, that's where a lot of this happens. And we see this all the time with uh, a female reporter who is out um, and some ass clown drives by and says that phrase, which I shall not repeat. No. Yep. Um, and then, um, you know, there was a last month, there was a kind of really, this had nothing to do with kind of like race or online hate, but a reminder of like this, the, the current state of media, uh, this woman in the United States uh, who's a reporter at a local TV station was covering an accident somewhere and she gets hit by a car while on TV oh, yeah, because yeah. Because it's just her and a camera out in the field. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of these reporters don't have crews anymore. So, if, you know, if you're think, thinking they're like, oh, here's the ivory tower reporter who's, you know, uh, out in the like th- a lot of these reporters, a lot of these like journey men and journey woman reporters are incredibly vulnerable because they are one man and or one woman units now. So, yeah, you could just say it's online hate, but uh, you also have to wonder the effect is like while you're holding like people to account like government people police people um that's good that's extra hard when even like covering like a dog show can you know get people like your fake news because you know they they want to pick on somebody yeah and it's at the level of ridiculous and a lot of it not to blame trump for everything i suppose we could but that the phrase (laughs) the phrase didn't wasn't in the lexicon until Trump, right? And mm-hmm. it's just, it's just, it's the default. And but then there was that more ominous one at Queens Park with Sean O'Shea. I'm sure you saw it, where the guy mm-hmm. was like, you know, when when the, I, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but it was like, when the in- insurrection comes, you'll be the first ones to die. Something to that effect. He's yeah. saying this to the camera in all seriousness. But then he was supposedly he was like, but I, yeah, I like your work on that. You know, when they yeah. go after the, yeah. the people that were, when they do the the, uh, not, not the pounce. What do you call it? The the ambush where it's like, uh, right. you know, we're, we're wondering about this fraudulent activity of yours. He liked that. But yeah. then because, because it's not, and the, I, the Ottawa protesters did it too. They had a press conference and it was like, who was invited? Like rebel and all those people. Yeah. Uh, any random blogger or podcaster that is, is of the family of the team Mm-hmm. but regular news legacy news is a phrase they use a lot now right mm-hmm. it's like well mm-hmm. your legacy news but it, you know legacy news is one thing but it now has this implication that it's 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 like a dinosaur but mm-hmm. it isn't because you you know they are they're very the press is very necessary and that's the problem like i said even if they're, they're reporting fact you know even if you just had the camera like here is what's going on you know you're doing b-roll or something and somebody mm-hmm. will come up to you and say who are you with eh? and the the peeling off of the decals of the car the ctv cars out in in alberta 
Mm-hmm. It's like, please take anything that indicates you are media off of your vehicle. I noticed with Abigail Beeman, formerly of uh, CVKW, is now an auto reporter for Global. Mm-hmm. She had, and I, I just, I noticed it because the contrast with the Olympics is one thing. You know, they had mm-hmm. CBC always have their gear on. Mm-hmm. Abigail Beeman just looked like somebody on the street. The mic didn't have any markings on it. She had no, you know, they usually have a, yeah, a global or CTV jacket or umbrella, nothing. She just standing there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a reflection of where this is. At. And they're of course far from the action as well behind the police line. Like you, you don't want to be in that situation. Now, somebody like Sean O'Shea, who's a veteran mm-hmm. person. Uh, but it, in saying all this too, I'm thinking, okay, there is nobody black or Brown covering this thing. Is there, mm-hmm. is that intentional? I'm just, th- this is kind of on the fly, but I'm thinking this in my head now. It's like who maybe Travis Dunnerish. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, I, I you know that is that intentional? Probably, I would imagine so. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, yeah, there, there used to be a time where you could like wear like a yellow vest. Oddly enough, it said um, press. And, yeah, it yeah. said press, and and yeah. you would you would not be touched. It didn't mean you weren't in danger, but it means like nobody would go after you. And it, like th- those days are kind of long gone, unfortunately. Uh, we'll have to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to come right back with our interview with Mike Schreiner. You are listening to Open Sources here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, both campus and community radio. Breaking the law, 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 breaking the law. That was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records, 21 McDonough in downtown Guelph. That song is definitely on vinyl. Mm-hmm. It was Judas <laughs> Priest. And the song, if you couldn't tell by them repeating it a hundred times, was Breaking the Law. <laughs> and that goes out to everyone in the convoy. <laughs> uh, Another dedication to the convoy, other than the song <laughs> convoy, but... I think a uh, little reminder. Yeah, I think it's to everyone's disappointment that we couldn't um, make the song this week. Ram Ranch, which unfortunately is oh, <laughs> completely oh, no <laughs> completely unplayable on terrestrial radio. <laughs> I don't even know if we can actively encourage people to Google that, but they probably will as soon as you hear it. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. I was like, oh, I'm not easily flustered, but my my. Let's just say um, it makes very liberal use of the word of a word that rhymes with rock. Anyway, um, <laughs> Google it, which seems like a great segue to talk to our MPP. Um, so, yeah, we invited Mike Schrenner on the show this week to talk about um, the convoys and the blockades, but also to talk about the, the announcement this week that uh, we're going, well, actually starting today as you're listening to this, um, uh, capacity limits are off on your restaurants and your bars, uh, links to ones without a dance floor, um, your gyms, your most settings, save for the sort of 
high capacity theaters and performance venues and sports stadiums. So all that stuff came off this week. Um, Mr. Schreiner has a lot of opinions about all of that and, and where we're going next with the pandemic. So we will let him speak for himself and uh, click play on the interview starting right now. Okay. <clears throat> so Mike Schreiner, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show. We're happy to have you. Yeah. Always a pleasure to be on Adam. Uh, well, we'll see at the end of this interview, but uh, <laughs> I guess looking to sort of what's going on with the, precautions the restrictions first of all because we get this big announcement monday morning i don't think any of us were kind of expecting it that there would be an early rollback to some of the restrictions the capacity limits we're getting rid of the proof of vaccination on march 1st a lot of people hear that and go whoa 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 that's like where did this come from we're moving a little fast but then i was hearing interviews with people on the science table saying well you know proof of vaccination was good when you know when we had delta the vaccination would stop Delta, would stop you from spreading Delta, but now we have Omicron and, you know, circumstances has changed. So um, I guess the question is, um, are, are we maybe not, or, or I guess we're maybe misattributing Doug Ford's um, motives. Is he following the science maybe a bit better than some of us who've gotten used to the vaccine just to play devil's advocate for a minute? <laughs> Yeah. So first of all, I just say that um, uh, you know I'm optimistic. We we see the uh, hospitalization and ICU numbers coming down. I mean, obviously, case count numbers are meaningless at this point because uh, the testing uh, capacity is overwhelmed. Uh, and we have a lot of public health officials, doctors, science table advisors uh, saying that you know we need to or we can be lifting restrictions. And so I think that's good. And I think we should be following that advice and lifting restrictions. I think where the premier failed was to give Ontarians uh, some metrics or some numbers about like what our goal is. And when we hit these numbers, we are going to lift these restrictions. And I've had uh, a few radio commentators push back on me on that and say, oh, you're just like delaying delaying the, you know, the lifting of restrictions. I'm like, no, if the met- if we hit the metrics early, maybe we can lift restrictions sooner. Um, if we hit them a bit later after March 1st, then maybe we delay a bit, but give us a rationale and to be honest and transparent with people um, of, you know, what metrics we hit. And, you know, I would have that guided by the science table. So it might be ICU admissions, it might be hospitalization, um, it might be what what um, like wastewater surveillance is revealing in terms of uh, COVID spreading spreading in the province, but like give us something to instill confidence uh, because I think one of the real mistakes that have been made throughout the pandemic, and this is something that a University of Guelph professor advised to me on early, I think you know April of 2020, was that for public health measures to uh, work, especially to have the public behind behind those measures, is leaders need to clearly articulate what the goal is, and then what actions will be taken when you achieve that goal. And that's something the premier really has failed to do. And I think he's especially uh, failing to do it right now. And it's important because public confidence and trust 
is deteriorating right now, regardless of where you stand. I mean, I have people phoning me who are absolutely opposed to vaccines and mandates and public health restrictions. And, you know, I'm getting an earful from, from folks, you know, who take that position, but also getting an earful from folks saying, you know, hey, my child's under five and can't be vaccinated. And, you know, the premier is lifting restrictions and appears to be caving in, you know, to occupiers of, uh, and blockaders rather than science. And so I think the premier could and would be able to not address 100% of those concerns, but a lot of those concerns, if he would, if he would give us some numbers and some goals that we're striving for that's guiding the decisions that he's making. I think that's sort of especially true with the accusation that uh, maybe he's he's caving to certain uh, constituencies who may or may not be blockading borders and and uh, the downtown cores of uh, Ottawa. Um, is is there? I mean, I have my experiences with the people who take part in the convoys and and protests like that. But is there a way? Do you think to make the politics work? That it, I guess if we did have certain metrics, as you said, that Doug Ford could have avoided making it. I mean, this maybe goes to other provincial leaders as well, making it look like they're capitulating to certain extremist factions instead of um, maybe following the science as they as they may be following public health advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if the you know chief medical officer of health and the science advisory table is advising the premier that we can be lifting restrictions. I think that's a good thing. And the premier should be following their advice. I mean, I was critical of the premier when he did not follow their <laughs> advice and lifted restrictions too early. So I'm certainly not going to criticize him for following their advice and lifting restrictions. And, and I think, you know, uh, a lot of fo- folks in the public do want to see fewer restrictions. And, you know, I think everyone wants to get back to whatever the new normal is going to be. Uh, but I think there would be a lot more confidence and trust in the premier's decision if if he would just you know release just a few metrics around why he's making the decision and what's guiding it and 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 also what may lead to um, let's hope that we reopen and stay open and we don't have to take. Uh, any other restrictive measures moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't know, like, you know, I think a lot of us before Omicron kind of thought, you know, hey, this is mostly behind us. And and so who knows what other variant may emerge. And so if, if he's being honest with us and showing numbers and metrics about what's guiding the reopening, um, that could help guide um, you know, let's hope this doesn't happen. I'm going to be very clear. I do not want this to happen, but may guide, um, uh, you know, public health measures that, that hopefully aren't needed, but maybe needed in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so I think it would just build, uh, again, you're not going to have 100% on any issue or any decision that you make. But I think you would have more public trust and confidence. And I can tell you, I've spoken particularly with a number of restaurant owners who one of their biggest concerns right now is just public confidence and consumer confidence to come in. And, and, and so I think the more numbers and science and evidence-based um, decisions the premier can make and be transparent with people about those decisions, um, I think, you know, there'll be more confidence in the public to go out and support 
local restaurants, for example. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think it'd be better for the economy and I think it'd be better for people's public trust around public health decisions. I mean, that's sort of the piece of this that's missing. Um, the the public health measures like wearing a mask, um, you know, vaccine, proof of vaccine requirements. There is a piece of that. And I saw it on the news uh, last night with people. Just, you know, people talking on the street, it's like, well, if I go into a restaurant and I know everybody there has gotten their two or three shots, that gives me a certain level of confidence that I could sit there and take off my mask and eat and that I, I'm not going to get sick. And um, could in, in, in the effort to return to quote unquote normal, um, is, is there a possibility this could just like sort of blow up because you don't get that consumer confidence? Well, that's exactly why I'm asking the premier to release some numbers and, and to give us some data and just be a bit more transparent with people, because I think it's really important right now that we do everything we can um, to maintain trust and to maintain some social solidarity as much as we can. Uh, you know, and it's interesting because uh, I think one of the things that wherever you stand, and I'll be very clear, I mean, I've been a very public supporter of vaccines, vaccine mandates, uh, vaccine certificate system, uh, etc. But I also think it's pretty dangerous territory when people when, when some politicians are demonizing people who, who have not been vaccinated for one mm. reason or another. And likewise, I think it's dangerous when people are demonizing folks for wearing a mask, you know, like, um, like I'm, I'm hoping that like we as Canadians uh, can just dial down some of the rhetoric and some of the demonization of people who who haven't agreed with us um, um, and don't don't agree with us on on some of these issues. Uh, and and so I've been really trying to spend a lot of time, uh, especially talking to people who don't agree with my support of vaccines and to have really calm and respectful conversations with those constituents here in Guelph, which, you know, is a big minority of people in Guelph. We know over 90% of people in Guelph are vaccinated. So I recognize it's a small number, but I also think those folks deserve to be heard uh, and and I'm listening. Um, But I, you know, I'm also honest with those folks about, you know, my support uh, for vaccines um, and that, you know, that that I think it's important that we especially take actions to not overwhelm our healthcare system. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, some metrics around hospitalization and ICU capacity should be part of what the premier is putting out there to guide our decisions. Mm. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time also talking to doctors, um, you know, respiratory therapists, nurses, frontline healthcare workers, and, you know, let, let's not forget how overwhelmed, um, you know, people in the healthcare system have been and just how, you know, overworked and underpaid and underappreciated a lot of nurses in particular are. And, and so I think we have to, as a society, you know, make sure we're, we have the backs of the people who are caring for us as well. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure you know, we take the necessary actions to make sure that we don't overwhelm and put too much pressure on our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the biggest pieces to to this is, you know, we, we kind of recover just enough to reopen up. But 
the people at the hospital don't really, I mean, it doesn't seem like they get a break. Um, and that makes me think about, I mean, what happens if COVID disappears tomorrow? I mean, there's still all that work in hospital. There's still two years of catch up surgeries and procedures to do. And, you know, probably a lot of, uh, comp time for hospital workers as well to to be serviced and i guess you know given the diversiveness and the politics about you know dealing with the pandemic as it's happening i think a lot of people are looking forward and, and saying well how can we solve the systemic problems in healthcare um and, and how can we do that in a bipartisan way having i guess seen the holes um, so drastic during the pandemic, you know, how, how can we work together to fix those things once the emergency is over? Yeah, we, uh, so I think one of the first things we can do, and, you know, this is a very um, highly charged partisan issue is, is to repeal bill 124, which caps total compensation um, for all public sector workers. But in this case, you know, really talking about, about nurses and, other frontline healthcare workers. Um, and to be clear, because some people said, oh, well, you know, do they really need a pay increase? Well, yeah, they do need a pay increase given how hard they, they've worked. But the, the cap is on total compensation. And so I know, I can't tell you how many nurses I've talked to um, who can just imagine the mental health stress they've been under, you know, working short, short staff shifts, working long shifts, sometimes doing double shifts. Um, you know, being worried about bringing COVID home to their family, um, just the stress and strain that's had. And, and, and many of them, you know, like their benefits, you know, give them, you know, maybe a month or two of mental health uh, supports and then, and then it's paid out of pocket. So even just some issues like that of accessing, you know, benefits, um, it, I think is really important. So one is like paying people properly and ensuring they have, um, you know, you know, fair benefit packages. And then the other one is going to be, we're going to have to increase both physical capacity within our hospitals. And, you know, Guelph General is an example of that. I mean, I don't think anyone's particularly thrilled about the trailer out front. And, you know, I'm, you know, we're pushing hard right now to, you know, secure funding to um, do some work at the hospital to expand its footprint. But we're also going to need uh, to increase human resource capacity. Uh, and so that's not only retaining uh, healthcare workers by paying them properly and offering them proper benefits, but it's also making sure we're, we're recruiting uh, new people to the profession. And that, that's harder to do if the existing folks are, are, you know, talking about how stressful it is. Mm-hmm. And also, I think we have to really look at the fact that we have so many internationally trained uh, nurses in particular uh, that we need to set up a, a process to, you know, fast track their accreditation so they can actually perform their profession uh, here in Ontario. Uh, and other jurisdictions in North America have done that. Ontario needs to do that. Uh, so we're going to have to look at really building capacity in the system. And then I would say one of the things I'm concerned about, and there's some growing concern, is that the Ford government, given some, you know, recent comments, um, are, are looking to, you know, privatize uh, additional parts of our healthcare system. And, you know, I just think that's the wrong way to go. Uh, I think we need to, you know, we need a publicly funded, publicly delivered healthcare system. We need to, you know, ensure that we prioritize 
uh, care over profits and that we put people and patients first. And, and so, you know, I'm going to be fighting against any efforts of the Ford government to privatize more of our healthcare system, uh, because as we expand that capacity in the healthcare system, it needs to be, uh, it needs to be public and it also needs to be focused and centered on care. I do want to address the, the ongoing protests and the blockades too, although the, the one at the Ambassador Bridge does seem to be over for the moment. But I think there are going to be a lot of questions coming out of this, especially around police powers. And Doug Ford has said this a couple of times. He said, you know, he doesn't have the ability to direct, he doesn't have the power to direct the police. And I think a lot of people hear that and think to themselves, well, if the premier doesn't direct the police, assuming he means like the OPP, um, not just municipal p- police services, which don't answer to him. But I mean, if he doesn't direct the police, who does? Yeah, so it's a good question. And, and I would say we need to proceed cautiously in this. And I say this as somebody who uh, has been calling on the premier to, you know, come out of hiding and actually in the occupation in Ottawa, in the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge, which which now has happened, um, and, and so I think you know I think the Premier was AWOL or missing an action uh, for far too long, and I think he still is when it comes to dealing with the situation in Ottawa. I mean, the last time I checked, Ottawa is a city in the province of Ontario, uh, and so the fact that the Premier is not participating in the you know trilateral meetings to try to coordinate efforts among the city, the province, and the federal government to me, just a failure of leadership. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I think it's, we need to be pretty cautious when you sort of, anyone would suggest that any politician should direct the operations of the police. Mm. I mean, politicians obviously, and the public uh, need to provide oversight of policing, need to, you know, make sure police have, the resources they need to to get the job done and can raise questions. And I think in the case of Ottawa, there needs to be some pretty serious questions raised around, you know, what is the plan? Why isn't, why isn't uh, the city, why isn't the occupation being ended? Why haven't the police enforced the law, uh, et cetera. Uh, But, you know, so, you know, you think of path, like you think of the Oka crisis, you think of um, the wet sweating protests, you, you think of, you know, the tragic murder of Dudley George, and you think, do you really want a, a politician directing police action? And so there's a reason that that separation is in place. Uh, and I think especially in a democracy, because, you know, I would never want and um, you know, politicians directing police action against their political opponents or people mm-hmm. they disagree with on an ideological basis. And we've certainly seen that in other countries. And, and I, I don't want to see that in Canada. The other part, part of this too is, and, and we've seen it with different members of different police forces, is um, a, a certain camaraderie between the protesters and the police. And I, I guess the question there is, um, you know, you don't want to be proctoring how police officers personally think or how they personally feel. But I mean, when they're on the job and they're being directed to, you know, break a protest 
um, or break up a protest or police a protest, even if they agree with maybe the goals of, of the protesters, um, I guess, how do we get politics, that kind of politics out of policing? Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, disciplinary action needs to be taken against those officers who uh, have, if they have aided and abetted the protests in any way. I mean, you know, an important part of, uh, you know, any public servant. Uh, so that's if, you know, work for the Ontario Public Service, uh, you know, Canadian Public Service, police services, is that, you know, you you make a pledge to, you know, uphold the constitution and, and enforce the law. And it has to be done in a nonpartisan, non-ideological, uh, uh, you know, don't take sides way. And, uh, you know, if you violate your oath to do that, then, then, you know, disciplinary action should be taken. And, and so, you know, I think that is vitally important in a democracy in the same way that, you know, you don't want politicians directly uh, overseeing the operations of the police, especially if they're directing those police to take actions against their political opponents. And likewise, you know, it's just unacceptable that police would take sides uh, in these types of protests, you know, and in this case, an occupation, uh, because the, you know, the impartiality uh, of uh, policing is is vitally important. And so I think one of the things we as a country are going to have to look at you know, we're starting to see more and more disturbing investigative um, journalism um, about the fact that in some police forces and in some cases in the Canadian military, uh, there are people with, you know, white supremacist or far right connections, views, contacts, um, you know, with with some of these extremist groups. And, and you know, that that needs to be, you know, rooted out and eliminated from our military and police forces. Are you still feeling like optimistic that, you know, despite the the hiccups we've seen, we've experienced the last couple of months, the protests, the Omicron, all of that, like, are we on an upswing? Um, are things getting better from here on? I'm not asking you to make a prediction, but just like sort of your gut feeling is, you know, are we kind of on track to sort of get back to normal or something resembling normal how do you feel (laughs) well so so the the numbers are trending in the right direction and you have a lot of doctors public health officials saying that they're training in the right direction and and we can be reducing uh restrictions and so i'm optimistic in that regard but i don't think we should fool ourselves at this point that another variant uh could emerge and so I want to be cautiously optimistic and very hopeful uh, that the worst of this is behind us. But I obviously can't guarantee that. Not a real guarantee, but we will take it. So Mike Schreiner, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Adam. So that was, once again, uh, Mike Schreiner. Uh, maybe, hmm, I don't want to say for certain, maybe the last time you'll hear from him on here before the election. So. Oh, because it's uh, almost March, which means it's almost April, which means it's almost May, and election is June second. So, stay creeping tuned. ever closer, yeah. Creeping close. I don't know where the time's going. I know where. I know where. I know where time is right now. It's time to end the show. <laughs> that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. If you want to listen to us again or stay connected to us, 
Uh, go to our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you'd like to listen to the show again, you can download it from our website every Monday, get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. Scotty Hertz, and since I'm off the socials right now, I won't give anything until I find a fax machine in the e-waste. <laughs> uh, maybe <laughs> send me an email if you want, scottyhertz at bell.net. What a throwback that is, eh? Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Emails, emails making a comeback. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not that it ever went anywhere. Right now. (laughs) This very second. (laughs) Stay tuned for DJ Sounds Good to Me here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return next Thursday at 5 p.m. for more open sources. And we will see you then.